standing in line at the grocery store is fortunately a thing of the past. And yet we always have high quality meat, thanks to ButcherBox. Each box delivers 9 to 11 pounds of the meat you want. There's lots to choose from, but we always make sure to have 100% grass-fed and finished beef, fillets, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon. Luckily, today's sponsor, ButcherBox, is offering our listeners ground beef for life. That's awesome. Tacos, burgers, chili. Sign up, choose your box and delivery frequency, then ButcherBox ships everything frozen in a recyclable box. This is your chance to never have to shop for ground beef again. That's right. ButcherBox is giving new members free ground beef for life. Sign up at butcherbox.com myths and get two pounds of ground beef free in every order for the life of your membership. Log on to butcherbox.com myths to claim this deal. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the beginning of a two-parter from German folklore where we'll learn why, if things are going well, you should dance walk everywhere. And if you're going to make a deal with a magical creature in the dark forest, be sure that it's the one that makes fun of you, and not the actual devil. The creature this time is a giant who kidnaps guys for once, and whose idea of a battle is just throwing armfuls of weapons in your direction and hoping something hits. This is Myths and Legends, episode 240A, Man of Glass. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is a literary fairy tale by Wilhelm Hoff, published in 1827, around the same time as the Grimm stories. This one is set roughly in the 1700s, in what would come to be known as Germany. It's an interesting story, because not only is it a very cohesive story in its own right, not always the case for folklore on this show, but it was analyzed by Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung, so we're going to be able to do some deeper dives than normal throughout the story. It looks like it was fairly popular in the mid-20th century, because not only did Jung look into it, but two movies were made in 1924 and 1950. This is a two-parter. As much as I wanted to make it a single episode, the story is worthy of the extra space. Today, we'll jump in with Peter Monk, a young man with a good job, loving family, and a roof over his head. So why does he feel so discontent? You were one of the lucky ones, Peter. Peter Monk's mother would tell him. These days, though, he didn't feel so lucky. It started one morning, when he awoke to weeping, in their one-room house. Through the curtain that designated the bed-sized space that was his from the rest of the house, he heard his mother's weeping, muffled by the quilt, the quilt that she shared with his father. Peter laid there, staring up at the thatch. His father was dead. He had heard those coughs shaking the man's chest each night for weeks, seen the black sputum that had ruined countless handkerchiefs, his father had been saying he was dying for a long time. Now, his body had caught up with his fears. As Peter laid in the dark, he had these moments. He wouldn't mourn his father. Not yet. There will be plenty of time for that over the next few days. For now, he would mourn his dreams. Dreams of getting out of this village. Maybe going to university. He was smart. Capable. He didn't know what the future held, or he hadn't known last night. Now, 
he knew exactly what it looked like. This morning, he was his father. He was a charcoal burner. He would have to support himself. He would have to support his mother. By the time he could hope to be free, the world will have passed him by. He stayed there staring up at the thatch for a while after that. Then, he took a deep breath, parted the curtain, and embraced his mother and his new fate. That was five years ago. Peter's hands were rough now. He didn't have much time for reading anymore. He had plenty of time for thinking out in the forest. While he gathered the wood to be turned into charcoal, days turned into seasons, seasons to years. If he didn't have so much time to think about it, it might not drive him so mad. He heard the bells of the village, scooped up the rest of the wood for tomorrow's fire, and hurried toward town. He didn't want to miss them. Big Ezekiel, Long Solomon, called such because he was tall, and the Dancing King. Peter leaned in the shadow at the corner of the tavern, nursing his cheap ale, and watched the three. They weren't the only ones who went to the tavern on Sunday nights. But man, the life they must lead. The chair creaked under Big Ezekiel as the man settled in. With a grin, he reached down and brought up a fistful of florins. Gold coins clattered out onto the table. Ezekiel ordered a round for himself and his buddies. They had the best wine, the nicest clothes. Peter slid his hand into an empty pocket, one that was, quite literally, hanging on by a thread. Peter looked back to the men at the table. They must be the luckiest men in the world, and Peter had no idea what they did. The dancing king, named such because he was the best dancer in the ballroom, Peter had learned that he had been apprenticed to a woodcutter. He didn't look like a woodcutter's apprentice anymore. Rumor was that he had found gold sunk in the Rhine River, like something out of the old legends. Peter didn't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing to go each Sunday, if it got him through the week, or if it made Mondays that much more difficult. But he couldn't help himself. Every Sunday, he would sit there, far off, sipping at beers he couldn't afford, and dreaming that he had a life like them. But he, Peter, he was one of the lucky ones, or so his mother said. It was all superstition. The glass man. He lived in the forest and only showed himself to those born on a Sunday between 11 and noon. Peter's first cries had rung out alongside the noontime church bells on a Sunday, 19 years ago. If you found the glass man and you sang out a simple poem, you could ask three wishes of him. Days passed. Weeks. Every week wasn't harder. His life was still good, relatively. It was just the same. He saw Ezekiel, Solomon, and the Dancing King each week at the tavern. And the week that had felt not amazing, but not terrible to him, was tarnished by what he could have had. This continued until the week after his 20th birthday. His mother found him in a suit one Saturday afternoon. He said he had finished early. There was a friend in the city he needed to see about a prospect. He didn't know if it would pan out, but, well... He had to try something. His mother looked at him in his Sunday suit. Uh, okay, just be careful out there. The king's soldiers were always looking for men they could press into service for the crown. Peter smiled. 
he knew the routes through the black forest that none of them did. I mean, he had been traveling it alone since... His shoulders slumped. His mother patted him on the shoulder. She missed him too. It was dangerous, but she trusted her son. His father had raised him well. Besides, she could see that he needed... something. He wasn't content with this life. And by now, she wasn't sure he would ever be. She gave him a hug and watched him break the first rule of the Myths and Legends podcast. Peter didn't get a chance to call out for the little glass man that night, no matter how ridiculous the whole thing felt. The forest grew dark, strangely dark, and he heard a thunderclap in the distance. The fir trees, where the little glass man lived, were at the highest point in the forest, and he was still a half a day's hike when he needed to seek shelter. He didn't quite break rule two about going in the scary house in said forest, because while it was a cottage in the dark forest, it didn't look all that scary. By the way, for anyone else who wants to tempt fate, they almost never do. And he knocked on the door. Silence fell inside as an elderly man, his daughter and son-in-law, and their three children looked on the well-dressed stranger with his hat in his hands. They brought him in, gave him soup, and told him under no circumstances was he leaving tonight. Oh, the, the storm? Peter asked between slurps of soup. The family shook their heads and threw the door bar down. No, Dutch Michael. Peter slurped his soup again and looked at the serious faces. Eyes stuck to the windows. Um, follow-up question, I guess. Who is Dutch Michael? The grandpa was the first to break into a laugh, slapping his knee and tugging at his beard. <laughs> this kid, his jokes. Peter shrugged. Uh, sorry, no, he had no idea who Dutch Michael was. The family's smiles dropped from their faces. Oh, wow, okay. Story time, then. If, like me, you were holding out hope that Dutch was his first name, like Dutch Vanderling, and things were not about to get moderately racist towards people from the Netherlands, well, folklore is gonna folklore. We'll just call Dutch Michael Michael. And, oh yeah, he's literally the devil. He showed up in the Black Forest decades ago as an overly tall woodcutter who wanted to help people. Into sin, he also wanted to help them cut wood and stuff. And when the wood was cut, they floated down the Rhine to the Netherlands, where they sold it for money so they could do more sinning. The devil is all about that sinning. Anyway, when the woodcutters were broke and sad, Michael went back to the Black Forest to be lord of the forest. This was a hundred years ago. And he's just been hanging out in the forest for a hundred years? What has he even been doing? Peter asked, draining his bowl. The elderly peasant shrugged, giving people bad luck, making deals with people. If there's one thing the devil loves more than sinning, it's making deals. You don't play the fiddle, do you? Peter shook his head. Outside, the storm had ceased. The grandfather said that tomorrow, Peter could be on his way. He could have a warm spot by the fire tonight. The old man handed him a small hay bale for a pillow. No sense in giving Michael more of an advantage than he already had. He 
Peter Monk. Peter heard from a tree in front of him. A man stepped out. He was nearly seven feet tall and muscular, with a gray-black beard that hemmed his jaw. His staff tapped the ground. Peter froze. Where are you going? Michael asked. Peter pointed past the man. He was just going home. Michael didn't break eye contact. No, he wasn't. That wasn't the way home. Don't tell lies. Peter swallowed hard. He, he pointed to the shady path that he was going that way. It was, it was shaded. You're trying to summon the little glass man, Michael said, pointing up toward the tallest point in the forest. That's a bad idea. He's a little cheat. You won't get much from him. Michael looked over Peter. Such a smart, spirited lad. Couldn't imagine he was content to burn charcoal for the rest of his life. Peter looked to his shoes. Being a charcoal burner could be a dull life. Michael stepped forward. It wasn't wrong of Peter to think that way. Let's change that. He stuck his hand into a bag at his side. He knew Peter envied Ezekiel, Solomon, and the others. And that was understandable. Coins jangled in his bag. They were enviable men. Tell me, Michael asked, how many hundreds of gold coins would you like to have? Peter staggered backwards. What? No, 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 no. He couldn't do this. Sure you can, the man said. It was so easy. Peter only needed to say the word and he could be the richest man in his village, the richest man in the Black Forest. No, he knew what this man was. He didn't come out here to make a deal with him. Peter darted to the right and then broke to the left when Michael moved to block his path. He was running, running for the fir trees. He didn't know what would happen when he went there, but it was Sunday morning, and he prayed that the little glass man was there. He could feel the ground pounding with each one of Michael's steps. Peter didn't have a plan here just running from the devil himself. But the devil was catching up. Then, as Peter cleared a ditch, Michael roared out behind him. Against his better judgment, Peter planted a heel and dug deep in the dirt to see why the hunter had cried out. Michael had yelled in anticipation because as soon as he approached the ditch, he tried to stop, but his head snapped back after hitting an invisible barrier. He fell back but his staff hovered in the air, caught in the barrier, and red cracks began to form in it. It shook, suspended in the air, and shattered, sending splinters of wood all around, except they weren't wood. The piece that hit Peter moved. A snake slithered up his arm, burying its long, venomous teeth. Peter scrambled to tear it away, but he was too late. Luckily, the hawk was not. A bird swooped down from the sky, ripping the snake from Peter's arms with its talons. Peter watched the hawk fly away, and Michael doing that mime invisible box thing, but for real. Wow. Those were two successive freebies. Regardless, he wasn't going to wait around for his luck to run out. He sprinted off into the fir trees, away from the trapped Michael, who yelled curses after him. see Peter meet a meaner stranger than the actual devil in the forest, but that will be right after this. 
treasure man and forest old, more than a hundred years, I'm told. You own this wood, if it be true. As Sunday's child, I come to you. Peter called out into the forest. He wasn't sure he got the last line correct, but... Hey! A head popped back behind a tree, not ten feet away. I... I saw you, Peter said, feet cushioned by the needles as he walked. No, you didn't, he heard. Yes, I, I did. Also, I'm talking to you. Are you... Are you the little glass man? Wait, do you actually exist? The little glass man emerged from behind the tree. Peter was incorrect when it came to the poem. It was almost there, though. Also, he said that Peter just met Dutch Michael, the actual devil in the forest. Meeting the glass man shouldn't come as that much of a surprise, the little glass man said. Also, he wasn't actually made of glass, but his shoes, coat, and hat were all made of colored glass and he puffed a blue glass pipe. He took a handkerchief out of his fabric trousers, because not only do glass pants make it really uncomfortable to sit down, but they kind of defeat most of the purposes of wearing pants. He mopped his brow because he seemed to always be sweating. Thanks for that back there, Peter said, pointing a thumb over his shoulder. The little glass man smiled. He was happy to help. Now, what brought Peter to the heart of the Black Forest? Peter took off his hat and held it in his hands. It's just, every Sunday, he watched Ezekiel with all of his money and the Dancing King with his moves. It wasn't dancing that brought you here, the little glass man interrupted, wiping his brow again. Peter said that it wasn't. It was being a charcoal burner. The little glass man sighed. Really? a reliable job with good hours that paid the bills and gave him free time enough to go looking for magical men in the forest. Yeah, that sounds terrible, the little glass man said with an eye roll. You can't blame me for trying to improve my position, Peter argued. Charcoal burning was dull. The timberers and the glass blowers seemed to have a much better time. Yeah, and if you were a glass blower, you want to be a merchant. And if you were a merchant, you want to be a noble. And if a noble, a king the little glass man replied. But he stopped himself. He was obliged to give three wishes to a Sunday child. That being said, he would give the first two today, but Peter would have to wait on the third. And the little glass man reserved the right to deny the third one if it was, quote, a stupid wish. Peter Monk, still reverent but curious, asked, what defined a, quote, stupid wish? Was the little glass man the only arbiter of what constituted a stupid wish, or was there, like, an appeals process? The little glass man rubbed his brow. Peter Monk was starting to sound like a kid who didn't want any wishes. Peter shook his head. All right, of course he wanted wishes. They would debate the issue of the third wish when it came up. All right, first two wishes, here we go. Peter wanted to be able to dance as well as the Dancing King, and always have as much money in his pocket as Ezekiel. The little glass man said, Okay, well, those were objectively terrible wishes. Peter said that wasn't nice. Those things were important to him. Well, your values are bad, the little glass man replied. And you should be ashamed. You realize you could end wars with a wish, cure diseases, ask for wisdom to be like Solomon, but not the tall guy from that bar you go to. Peter said that, okay, well, he didn't really grasp the scope of this whole thing. Could he have a redo? 
The little glass man said, sure, because the dancing thing was barely a wish. Yes, he could have a redo. What did he choose? I want a glass factory. Oh my gosh, the little glass man said, and threw his glass pipe against a tree. Some shards remained lodged, while the rest of it flew in a hundred different directions. And a horse in a carriage? Peter winced, tacking on that little addendum. Look, he knew it wasn't ending wars and curing diseases, but he could help a lot of people by giving them good jobs. You know, capitalism and stuff. What are you doing? The little glass man said to Peter, who stood facing the black forest with arms wide open. He said he was preparing to receive his glass factory? The glass man pulled out a slip of paper and a bag of gold. Did Peter think he could just make a glass factory? Whatever. Three days ago, the owner of the largest glass factory in the Black Forest died. Peter Monk was to go to his widow and to make a fair offer. Peter heard a neighing behind him, and his carriage pulled up. I guess the little add-on had worked. The little glass man pulled out another pipe and lit it saying that he would be seeing Peter again for his third wish, after he had gone through many life experiences and learned some hard lessons and whatnot. Peter said, great, that was great, as he inspected his new horses. The little glass man nodded. Yep, that was about as much attention as he thought Peter had paid to him. Good talk. Oh, and if you ever come to me for money again, I'll string you up by your neck, the little glass man actually said in the story as he puffed his pipe. Peter nodded. Great, sounds good. Thanks, LGM. Actually, wait, what? He turned, but in the little glass man's place was a cloud of smoke. When it dissipated, he was gone. The emperor has arrived, Peter announced to the tavern as he strutted in. He got some half-bemused smirks, but the people mostly went back to their tankards and cards. In the months since meeting the little glass man in the forest, Peter had been making some big changes. He found out that he loved his new job of walking around a glass factory managing glass blowers. I mean, for like two weeks. He got to try out blowing some glass of his own. And all the people whose livelihoods depended on him being happy with them said that he did a great job. He was a natural, so, you know, nowhere to go there. Soon, he stopped going every day, ending his practice of working an hour in the morning. He started going every other day, then every week, then every other week, and now the factory just kind of ran itself with no oversight or leadership. Dream job. He needed a hobby in the meantime, so he started replacing work time with tavern time, he quickly trounced the Dancing King in a dance-off, after which he kind of only half-jokingly demanded fealty and that the Dancing King get on his knees. Peter said that the Dancing King could retain his title, for Peter was now the Emperor of Dance. A really cool title that's even better when you give it to yourself and then have to pay people to call you by it. Seeing as the first wish had been granted, Peter always had money in his pockets the same amount as Ezekiel. So while he was a touch insufferable with his constant Tobey Maguire Spider-Man 3 dance walking, he was a generous tipper and always gave to the poor. So everyone kind of got over the rest of the stuff. 
Despite wanting to be known for his dancing abilities, he soon became known, half mockingly, as the Gambler, which, maybe I'm missing something, doesn't seem like a terrible nickname. The story does get judgy about it, though. It's not that Peter was great at gambling, he was actually pretty terrible, but he just had so much money that, no matter his hand, he could always outbet everyone. The locals caught on quickly, and Peter only challenged travelers, not wanting to anger the people that he had to live by, until one night. It was a Sunday night, and both Peter and Ezekiel were relaxed after drinking their weight in wine, and they sat down across the table from each other. I'm not going to bore you with the obvious outcome and the one glaring vulnerability of wishing that you always have as much money in your pocket as somebody and then winning against them in gambling. This whole thing was something Peter really wanted to sit there and savor. The man he envied so much that he would structure one of his five wishes around was losing to him in cards. The student had become the master. Once again, he didn't realize how paradoxical it was that he would choose to take all the money of the man whose money he always had the exact amount of until he slid all of his winnings into his pocket. Ezekiel, face in hands, looked up. That was everything. Could he ask Peter for just a small loan to pay off his rent this month? Peter dipped his hand into his pocket with an, of course, but then he himself froze. Yeah, he always had as much money as Ezekiel, and since he had made Ezekiel destitute, he was now destitute. His hand came out empty, and Ezekiel shook his head. He couldn't believe Peter's selfishness to have all that money, yet refuse to help out someone in need. Peter begged him to wait, but no one believed him. Even when he showed them his empty pockets, they were convinced that it was some sort of wizardry, that he had transported it home by magic. Ezekiel said he would tell everyone in the Black Forest that Peter was a wizard and he would probably be burned. Peter was still too shocked by his turn of fortune to respond, but Ezekiel and his buddies gave him a parting gift, punch in the stomach and a tear in his jacket before throwing him out on the road. For a couple of days, Peter prayed that Ezekiel's luck would turn so that his own luck would turn, but it never came. Then, his mother who had a whole side story of her own that we're not going to go into, but now that she had money on behalf of her son, refused to sit by her old friends in church, wanting to associate with, quote, a better class of people. Both Peter and his mom had some growing to do, I guess. Anyway, his mother turned to him. Doesn't he, like, own a glass factory he never visits? Peter sat up straight. The glass factory, of course. The next day, he left for the glass factory. We'll see why you should actually show up to work from time to time. But that, once again, will be right after this. Peter heard the breaking glass before he saw what remained of his glass factory. He turned the bend in the road to see not a guard at the gate, not the fires of industry billowing smoke from within, but one lone man, throwing rocks at the windows of his factory. Oh, hey boss, the man said, smiling and waving. Peter rushed up and plucked the rock from his hand. 
What was he doing? Why was no one stopping him? Peter shook his head. He was going to get the sheriff. Oh, he comes by sometimes. Tries his hands at breaking the windows. He's getting better, the worker said, picking up another rock and flinging it. A window high up on the factory, sprinkled glass on a roof. Peter demanded to know what was going on. The worker said, oh, uh, yeah, this was all Peter's fault. When he stopped showing up, he also stopped paying the workers. They took anything that wasn't nailed down, and also the stuff that was nailed down. That just took a little bit longer. It was basically just a warehouse with a ton of broken windows now. Turns out that when you're running a factory, you actually have to run the factory. As for me, I used to make glass. Now I break it. That's, that's my arc. That's what I'm doing with my time. How are you? Peter, frenzied, grabbed his former employee. He was destitute. He couldn't afford to put food on the table, let alone... They heard the horse hooves retreating, let alone a carriage and a driver, the employee said, shaking himself free. Peter probably should have used his inside voice there. Uh, looked like he was walking. Ears ringing and hands shaking, Peter started the long walk back to town. The sounds of rocks hitting his factory in the background, growing quieter and quieter. His walk was a dance walk, as most of Peter's walks were at this point, but it was a sad dance walk, in as far as that's possible. It wasn't a half mile down the road before he was joined by soft footsteps at his side. He looked down and saw the little glass man. LGM, I'm at the bottom, LGM. Fate has turned on me, Peter said through tears. It wasn't fate, the little glass man noted. It was your terrible wishes and your even worse management of them. Also, stop calling me LGM. I hate it. Peter, still with a frenzied look on his face, turned to the little glass man and found that he towered over the being. The little glass man took a step back, but it was too late. Peter snatched him up from the ground and held him aloft by his collar. He now had the little treasure man in his power. All of his problems were at an end. LGM sighed and shook his head as his jacket grew orange. Oh no. That's where he was wrong. Peter's problems were only beginning. Within seconds, the jacket was too hot to hold, and Peter screamed and dropped the little glass man, too horrified by his seared and smoking hands to watch the creature dart off into the forest. Peter stared down at his burning hands. There was only one option left now, for himself and his mother. He needed to go talk to Michael. That's where we'll leave it this week. Next week, we'll finish out this tale and hear what the famed psychoanalyst thought of the story. If you'd like to support the show, for less than the price of a 2022 Pooping Pooches wall calendar, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of this show that don't cater to the people who see the awkward face of a dog pooping and go, yeah, I want to make this my 2022. I want to look at this all year. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more information on the membership, not the dog poop calendar. By the way, we don't get any sort of commission for this, but you all have actually led to a few of these items selling out. 
So, you know, great work, everyone. The creature this time is Azrael, from Armenian folklore. Azrael is not the angel of death, or the guy who took over for Batman in the 80s when Bane broke his back. This Azrael is a giant who saw three beautiful fairies and decided to kidnap their brother. A little out of the ordinary, but he's mixing things up, I guess. The three fairies put out a call for a hero to come rescue their brother and enter The Apprentice. The kid, the hero, was known as The Apprentice, and I have no idea why. And he was led to the foot of the mountain where Azrael dwelled in exchange for 11 golden goblets from the fairies and a local king who all agreed to the price. The giant, Azrael, had two giant servants. Makes sense. And I should really emphasize had because they died pretty quickly when the apprentice charged them with his horse. Azrael was roused from his nappy nap by the apprentice's challenges and the battle began. Azrael armed himself with seven maces, seven swords, and a bow with seven arrows. At this point, I'm starting to think that Azrael might not be too good at this. I mean, he's a humanoid giant and he only has two arms, but he's trying to wield 14 melee weapons, as well as shoot seven arrows all at once. It went exactly as you would expect. It didn't help that he just threw the maces and the swords at the apprentice. And since there's no graceful and accurate way to throw 14 maces and swords at somebody, they all missed. Shooting seven arrows went a little better, only because most of them went in the general direction of the apprentice. But they, too, all missed. After that, Azrael just stood there, looking as awkward as a pooping pooch's calendar. The apprentice charged him, hit him in the head with his own mace, and Azrael went down. The apprentice, being a medieval hero, quickly dismounted and cut off the giant's head, and then did one better by cutting the giant's head in half. At that, the giant cried out. The apprentice looked down. What? He can still talk? The giant said yeah, he was a magical medieval giant, so it wasn't weird that a cross-section of his head could still produce speech without lungs or vocal folds. Hey, though, would the apprentice do him a solid? Would he just cut his head in half again and put him out of his misery? Because he was going to die anyway, whether from bleeding out from his head being cut in half, as you do, or from the apprentice's mercy. He would rather do the latter. So, how about it? Do him the favor of cutting his head in half one last time, do the good hero thing. The apprentice looked down and... Nah. The giant blinked, or I guess winked is more accurate. What? Come on, be the good guy here. The apprentice asked, why? So the giant could heal from all of his injuries if he cut his head one more time? Maybe use one giant weapon instead of 14 this time? The giant said, what? No, that was... No, who told the apprentice that the giant healed when his head was cut like three times? That was a lie for sure. You know what? He should see how much of a lie it was and just cut the giant's head in half again. Apprentice? Apprentice, he moved outside of the field of view for one eye and the other's in the grass somewhere? Apprentice? But the apprentice was already waiting for the fairy's brother to come out of the castle. The two men got on a horse and left the giant to his fate and the apprentice got his 11 goblets. I kind of hope like in private, he took a cue from the giant and just tried to drink from all 11 at once. 
That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. 